Today we're going to look at the faithfulness of God in the face of the fickleness of the human race. As we come to the third act in our series, Long Story Short, the whole story of the Bible in six acts. Two weeks ago we looked at creation and we saw that God had created a world in perfect beauty and order, that idea of God's shalom peace, everything fulfilling its purpose, mankind at the heart of the drama created in God's image in complete fellowship with him, in intimacy with one another, that phrase between the man and the woman, two becoming one flesh, is so intimate. It speaks about a transparency and an innocence in that relationship. They had meaningful creative work to take what God had done, which was already very good, and to fill it out, to make more of it. And then chapter two, man chose not to trust in a good God and chaos came into the world. And rather than intimacy with God, the relationship is broken. Isaiah 59.2 pictures it so well. When God says, your sins have put a separation between you and me, your iniquities have caused me to turn my face from you. I do not hear. Sin broke the relationship with the creator that we were intended for. But even more than that, every aspect of the shalom of creation is distorted. Man was meant to work the earth, and instead of this harmony between the earth and humanity, man toils now. Childbirth was meant to be a beautiful, wonderful thing, and while it is today, imagine it without the pain, because Filling the earth with the human race becomes an act of great pain for the woman. The intimacy that the man and the woman felt towards one another now becomes the battle of the sexes. Because of sin, man now fights for domination over women. And women, that phrase in the Hebrew, her desire will be for you, actually means that she will vie for that same position. Why? Because man and women were meant to be partners. So this whole image of God's shalom peace turns into complete chaos. And above all things, man meant to live in the garden eating from the tree of life that is lost to him. And so, as Paul says, sin came into the world and death through sin. So we come from creation to chaos. And today, we look at where hope comes into the scene. Hope by way of what we're calling today covenant. In Act 3, God promises. Now, the concept of covenant in the Bible is quite detailed and beautiful, and today we're going to focus on what we refer to as the Abrahamic covenant, and we're going to cover 1,500 years of history. So, in order to make a long story short, We're going to focus on three aspects of the Abrahamic covenant that we see established in Abraham and then protected throughout the whole history of the Old Testament. God establishing a people, God choosing a blessed land, and then God establishing a sacrifice. That's what this covenant of God's promise means for the big picture. We're gonna look at three different aspects of this 1500 year period. We're gonna start with Abraham himself, who at the time we picked the story up is actually Abram. Abram means father. 
which is kind of ironic because he wasn't. Sarah was barren. There were no children, which in that day and age is quite shameful. God says, not only are you going to be a father, I'm going to change your name to Abraham, which means father of many. So Abraham moved from daddy to big daddy. Then we're going to look at the Exodus and the coming into the promised land, and then we're going to flash forward to about 500 B.C. and look at the return from exile of the people of Israel. So let's start with Abraham, the covenant established. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills. So what we see in this first encounter with God is the whole essence of the covenant, which means a a promise, a commitment, that God makes with Abraham. Now, one of the first things I want you to understand about the whole concept of covenant in the Bible is that when covenant happens between two human beings, there's a need for mutual trust and accountability. A covenant is more of a relational uh, equivalent to contract. And in ancient days, one of the common ceremonies would be that each of the two households that were coming into a covenant would supply livestock and that livestock would be cut in half and they would create a path through these parted animals. And then a person would walk from one side to the other side and would pronounce I by my name and by what I possess, swear that I will be true to this covenant. And then the other person walks through to the other side and says the same thing and that sealed the deal. That may sound familiar to you because there is a moment later on in Abram's life where we see that very thing happening. How many of you remember that scene? And this is the difference between God's covenant with us and the human race and with Abraham and the covenants we make with one another. In this scene, rather than Abraham sharing in the ceremony, he is incapacitated and God walks through it turns around and walks back through it and says, by my name, this covenant will be fulfilled. So covenants in the Bible, especially the Abrahamic covenant, speak about God's commitment to his purposes and to his people. We like to call Abraham a great man of faith. Fact is, he had a very fickle faith. 
A very fickle faith. Say that 10 times fast. (laughs) Abraham had a very fickle (laughs) faith. Say it for me, please. Yeah, that. He was constantly fearful, lying, deceiving, trying to shortcut God's promise, having a child with Hagar. Abram was weak, just like you and me. Abraham did not get to be the father of many. He didn't get to become big daddy because he deserved it. He became that because God called him to it, and God was going to be faithful to that commitment in spite of the fact that Abraham, in his heart, was a victim of chaos, just like you and I are. And in this covenant, we see right here at the beginning the establishment of these three things. We see God saying to him in verse two, I will make you into a great nation. So a people is promised. And it will be a miraculous thing. One of the recurring themes in the whole story of Israel is miraculous births, women who are barren, women who are too old. God miraculously opens up their wounds. We see it through the line coming down from Abraham. We see it in Samuel, who was a great prophet. Pay attention to that. Because it's a foreshadowing of the real promise of God that the covenant represents. A virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And so one of the things you need to understand is that the whole idea of the Abrahamic covenant was not so that God would have one plan with one group of people and then another plan in the New Testament with a whole other group of people. There is only one people of God. There has only ever been one people of God. In the Old Testament, God establishes a relationship due to no one deserving it except his faithfulness to his plan for his creation and for the human race. God establishes that covenant in order to make a promise that would be fulfilled. Do you understand? In the Old Testament, there were those who were by birth Jewish people, but they were not God's people. They were in rebellion against God. He made a distinction between those who were just by birth Jewish and those who were, the word is circumcised in the heart. The true seed of Abraham, those who by faith trusted in God and the promise just like Abraham trusted in the promise and as the writer of Hebrews says, he was counted as righteous. So in the Old Testament, Salvation occurred the exact same way as it does now, except looking forward to the promise of Christ. It was by faith then, and it's by faith today, looking back at the fulfillment. And the writer of Hebrews says that we are the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. We are the children of Abraham. In the first covenant, God specifically chooses a people in order to demonstrate what his plan was going to be for the whole world. And now in the New Testament, the very phrases that describe this working of God through the old covenant with Abraham are now applied to you and me. Peter makes no mistake when he says, we are a royal priesthood, we are a holy nation a people belonging to God. These are the very things that God said he was gonna make through Abraham. 
And so the fact is the Old Testament covenant does not represent some plan that God is still enacting today in the Middle East. Now, whether or not God does have plans for the nation of Israel is a very interesting conversation for us to have theologically. But you need to understand, God didn't start something in the Old Testament and then all of a sudden start a new thing in the New Testament. What he did in the Old Testament was promise and what he did in the New Testament was fulfill. We are the fulfillment of that covenant. And that's why today this people of God is described by the Jewish men who followed Jesus and understood what he had accomplished as one where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, you see. So God's plan was ultimately for a greater people to bless the whole world through him. Let's double back and see the inception of it. So we see the promise of a a great nation that would come through Abraham. Then we see a land that is chosen. He actually leads him to Canaan, which is the land of blessing, the chosen land, and he promises it to his offspring. And then finally, we see right there in the heart of the promised land, Abram builds an altar to the Lord, an altar for sacrifice. So we see all three of these elements, a people that's promised, a land that is chosen to be blessed, and a sacrifice that is offered. Now, we're gonna jump forward through, let's see, Isaac, (laughs) Jacob, everybody going to Egypt because of the famine, hundreds of years going by, and Egypt gets fearful of the Jewish people that have now become a nation within a nation, and they become subjugated slaves in Egypt. And we see how God is going to be true to his covenant with their father Abraham. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3. We're going to begin reading at verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Now, just remember that we've just jumped ahead hundreds of years. Moses has never encountered God. The children of Israel have not encountered God. These have been silent years. What they have is stories about the God of their father Abraham, their father Isaac, and their father Jacob. This is totally new territory for this generation. Verse four, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. 
I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their sufferings. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And thus begins the next chapter in God's unfolding plan of his promise, his covenant, not just to Abraham, but to all the peoples of the earth who are gonna be blessed through it. The people are liberated. God says, I have come to rescue them we see that the land is going to be possessed. I'm going to take them out to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. What land is that? Oh, it's the land of the Canaanites. It's Canaan. It's the land that God had promised. And then, go forward to chapter 12, the institution of what Abram had begun, the establishment of a sacrifice that would become the heart and soul of the religious life of the Jewish people. Start at verse one again. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for the first month, the first of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood. You remember this scene. It's the Passover, the final blow to Pharaoh that resulted in the great exodus. Let's read on. Put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire. Head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And so sacrifice, the shedding of blood that liberates Israel from their captive state in Egypt becomes something that now is the heart and soul of their religious life. And this exists 
as the children of Israel fail to reach the promised land and drift for 40 years in the wilderness and then the next generation that by faith steps up and takes the land under Joshua, this cycle of sacrifice continues. The land is taken, hundreds of years of judges ruling over the people when everyone did what seemed right in his own mind and chaos once again took over in the promised land. And then the period of the kings, first a king of the people's choosing, then the king of God's choosing in the line of David, and ultimate disobedience, again chaos, worshiping and chasing after other gods and all forms of of immorality. And then finally the northern kingdom destroyed, never to be seen again, and then ultimately the southern kingdom that remained, Judah being taken into exile, all because of their disobedience. Chaos winning, it seems, again. 70 years, 70 years in Babylon. Here's the point, if this plan that God had to bless the whole world, to restore all things through this people of Israel, if this plan was in their hands, would it have ever possibly happened? Never, they proved over and over again that they could not be faithful. Why? Because chaos rules, sin rules in all of our hearts. We are incapable of complete faithfulness. Only a faithful God is completely and always faithful. And so he is faithful to the promise and the covenant. And when it was time for God to again move forward in his promise, Babylon falls. And a new regime comes in, and God moves in their heart, and we find that in the story of Ezra. So let's look in Ezra chapter one. Chapter one, verse one. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So here's the scene. 70 years of waiting, just like Jeremiah had said. God says, I know the plans I have for you. They're plans not to harm you, plans for hope in the future, but they are plans for most of you to die in Babylon. (laughs) 70 years, again, a failed, failed generation. God steps in with a new generation. And what do we see twice? He moves the heart of people. God moves in the heart of the most powerful man in the world and simultaneously he's moving in the heart of a generation of his people who have a hunger now to return. Many had settled in. 
they would become a whole class of Jewish people that even in the time of Christ were all around the world. Only a certain portion would actually come back to the promised land. It's interesting how God works here because you see, when Babylon took the people of Israel from the promised land, their way of dealing with people and kingdoms that they had defeated was to displace them. They took them out of their homeland where they would assimilate them. That's all the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where Babylon attempted to get the Jewish people to change their belief system. But when it was time for God to move them back, it was a regime change. (laughs) Cyrus and Persia Their whole philosophy was built on the fact that when they defeated a group of people, they took power from the gods of those people. The more gods we have on our side, the better. And now it becomes profitable for the most powerful people in the world to send Israel back. Who who made that possible? A faithful God. A covenant-making God. And at the same time, he's moving in the hearts of people. And those that he's called out to be the pilgrims that return go back. And so what do we see happening here? The people are returned. Everyone whose heart God moved. The land is repossessed. Let them go up to Jerusalem. And ultimately the sacrifice is restored. I want to just go forward to chapter 3. Just a couple pages forward. Cyrus sends them back and says, I want you to build the temple. Because in his mind, the temple is where God is worshipped. But you see, the temple was the only place where God was worshipped because of the presence of the altar, the sacrifice. Here is what unfolds, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to do what? To sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening sacrifice. Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet even been laid. Here's the point. The temple was just location. What's at the heart of God's covenant relationship with Israel? The altar, the sacrifice. So why is it important that Israel goes back to the promised land? What is it that we get from the covenant? Let's go back to God's first conversation with Abraham and let's say this verse together. The Lord said to Abraham, all people on earth will be blessed through you. God's plan, as I said earlier, that he began with Abraham was to make right what sin had turned to chaos. 
to bless all peoples of the earth. And we know in other passages, not just the people of the earth, but the earth itself, all of creation, which was set into chaos because of man's rebellion. Israel demonstrates over and over again that they can't do it on their own. They need somebody to step in and save them. And the only way they can be saved is if there is a sacrifice, if there is blood. And so God preserves his covenant by restoring the people back to the promised land, by restoring the sacrificial system back to the promised land. And we will see in our study of Nehemiah the the challenge that it was to reestablish all of that. But rest assured, that sacrificial system is intact for 400 silent years until, as the book of Galatians says, In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a virgin, subject to the law, to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. This was why the covenant, it was God's promise not just to Abram and to his physical seed, it was God's promise that through Abram, he would bring about restoration. The prophets saw that. They understood that would happen. When the people of God came back, they had made the way for what the prophets had said could now take place. Because unto you a child will be born, a son will be given. Now, here's the beauty of this whole thing. Passover lamb, chosen, and then held on for a week, part of the family, and then ultimately sacrificed the Lamb of God for the sins of his people. All that in place so that 400 years later, John the Baptist could see the true promised one of God come and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Did you know that when Jesus came into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, do you know what day of the Passover week that was? It was the very day when the families chose their lamb. Jesus was offering himself as their lamb. And the day that Jesus was sacrificed was the day of the great sacrifice of the Passover lamb. You see how God tied all that up? When you're in the midst of it, struggling as the children of Israel, knowing that God made promises, but yet everything seems to be falling out of your grasp, and then God steps in and saves your butt again, brings everything back on course, it's hard to know, but then all of a sudden, a shift in focus changes everything. I want you to take a minute and watch this video. I love that. Change of perspective, right? Think about the covenant with Abraham as God beginning to enact the beautiful painting of his redemption, but in a completely upside down chaos world. 
all along glimpses. God would have a people for himself. There would be a blessed land again. There would be a sacrifice. A sacrifice was necessary. All of this, look through a glass dimly in a heart that's turned upside down because of sin. And then Christ comes and turns the world right side up. And we see it. We see it all. God is faithful to his promise. It's a beautiful story. But we need to remember that there is hope, right? Amen. Amen. What a perfect sermon to begin Advent because it's all about that promise of a Christ who would come. This first candle, the candle of hope, readying our hearts for the coming of Christ once again. So I'm gonna ask you to stand We will usher in the Advent season by saying an Advent prayer together. We prepare ourselves for the coming of your Son. Forgive our sins. Cleanse our hearts. Keep us faithful for the promised coming of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.